Welcome to the Cell Culture Dish podcast, improving lab productivity and reproducibility by taking a fresh look at existing workflows and protocols. I'm Brandy Sargent, editor of the Cell Culture Dish. Joining me today is Sarah Simons. Sarah is an automation field project manager with Beckman Coulter Life Science, working on custom solutions for liquid handling systems. She joined Beckman in 2008 as an automation field application specialist focused on automated protocol development and customer training and support. Sarah enjoys taking a fresh look at existing workflows and suggesting new solutions when transitioning from a manual protocol to an automated process. Sarah studied molecular biology at the University of New Hampshire and worked in high throughput screening at Novartis prior to joining Beckman Coulter. I love the infographic that you put together for method spring cleaning, and we've shared it with our readers. Looking over the areas you've highlighted, which do you think are the most problematic for labs to maintain? I think the hardest thing to do is maintain the variance between operators, and that could be for a number of different reasons, from simple pipetting technique differences, how someone physically pipettes, somebody might mix Somebody might pre-wet their tips before they, they transfer volume. Um, you might use a completely different piece of equipment for your analysis. Some folks have a vortex right next to them on the bench that they may utilize that as opposed to mixing or not mixing at all. So I think the human variation from operator to operator is the hardest thing to, to maintain and to, to, to control. So that tends to be the hardest piece. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And which areas do you think are the most important in terms of of spring cleaning your methods? Sure. I think um, how you set up your reagents, how you set up your, your materials that, that are going to follow you through that assay from start to finish. They, they play so many different roles in every step of the process, and that'll be a big difference and, and really is something that, that needs some attention is, you know, the fact that each individual might run a process completely differently and not even realize it, unintentional changes that that you might make. You know, again, one person might mix, someone else doesn't, and that's just an inherent pipetting technique or, or, or instinct, essentially. We all pipette differently, and none of us think about how we do that. So that's, that's something that to really take a step back and think about actually how you run the same workflow from day to day, from operator to operator, from seven o'clock in the morning to maybe five o'clock in the afternoon or 4.30 right before you're leaving and you're thinking of you know what you're going to have for dinner or what you're going to do tonight versus in the morning, maybe you're highly caffeinated. <laughs> and so, you know, keeping those, those things in mind as you're analyzing your results, analyzing how a workflow is being, op- is, is being performed, or even analyzing the consistency of an assay. If you see that inconsistency, are there things that you can kind of point out and think about that may very easily make a slight adjustment? And are those things that you can work into the, the chemistry to eliminate? So is there something in terms of the assay itself that you can change that limits the impact of those variables? Yeah, that makes so much sense because really you you do, everybody does have their own little way of doing things and these tasks become so rote that you 
a lot of times don't even notice, you know, it's like driving the car down the street and you get somewhere and you go, Oh, how did I get here? Because you just, you almost put yourself on autopilot. So I think that's a great point to really think about carefully, um, how you're doing those, those different tasks and, and making sure you're not putting any of those variables into it without, without intending to. Absolutely. In your method spring cleaning article, which I also really enjoyed, you mentioned refinement as a way to really examine your protocols and look for ways to maximize time and resources. I know that automation can go a long way in addressing these needs as well. Where do you see the biggest benefits in implementing automation with respect to protocol refinement? I think the biggest impact is consistency. Automation is going to run the same process, exactly the same, whether or not, again, it's 7 o'clock in the morning or 4.30 in the afternoon or 11 p.m. at night when no one's in the lab or regardless of who walks up to the instrument and executes that program, right? If you're executing the same program and you're running the same method that has been built on your automated system, the consistency is, is there in terms of how that process is going to be performed and even the timing of incubations or from step to step, how long does it take to add reagent one versus reagent two? And what's the duration of time from sample one to sample 96 or sample 384, or whatever your, your assay is, is processing. And that consistency takes that one level of variable when you do get to a point of trying to determine the reason for an odd data point. If you're eliminating that as a variable, then there are certainly, it, it, it whittles down the things that you need to go and look at and, and, and dig deeper into and makes that a whole lot easier. The other side of it is that it allows you the ability to really build a more robust assay. A lot of the times when you have an overnight incubation for an assay, you know, typically it's overnight, 16-hour incubation. Why 16 hours? Typically because the, that's typic, the typical time between when someone leaves the lab at the end of one day and when they get back into the lab the next day and are ready to start their, their science again. So from 5 p.m. to 9 a.m., 16 hours. Is that really the optimal window for that bind or incubation time or whatever that that um, assay is 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 doing? Is is that really optimal, or is there a window in there that is actually better? And are you saturating your bind? Are you saturating your assay? And and now you're you're kind of limiting your ability to uh, determine the the threshold of what's a hit and what's not or what's what's a, a positive result and what's not so when you implement an automation into something like that you have the ability to kind of build a great time course and determine exactly what window is is the best for reading that end result and if that ends up being at 11 p.m or 3 a.m first of all you now know that and second of all if you're running that as an as an automated process, you don't have to actually expect somebody to come in on a regular basis at three, you know, 11 p.m. or 3 a.m. in order to perform the next step of the process. So it allows you that ability to really refine and and build a much more robust assay. That's such a good point because I think we have these protocols and we use them based on the workflow and based on when people are in the lab, but because automation wasn't an option uh, for a long time, 
it's important to go back and really think about, is that the most efficient way to do it? And with automation, you have so many more options of, of not needing to actually be physically present in the lab in order to accomplish these tasks that it's really a great opportunity to sit back and think, is this the most efficient way to do it? And with automation, we don't need someone here physically present. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, on that topic too, reproducibility is also an area that needs regular spring cleaning evaluation. And we touched on this a little bit, but I'd like to dive in a little bit deeper on what you see as the primary challenges in operator-related reproducibility um, and potential solutions. Um, so certainly we all are human, right? So we all err as we, as we go about our day and uh, we all fatigue and we're all individuals as well, right? So uh, as we already spoke about, we, we do things differently because we are human. And we do things differently over a course of the day because we are human and we might think about lunch at 11.30 as we're trying to finish up the last steps of a process. That incubation might take a little bit longer because we're human and we're going to, to lunch, right? As opposed to being a little bit more consistent there. In addition, you always have that new operator workflow challenge, right? You have somebody new coming in who's going to be performing a particular assay. And, and we've all been pipetting instinctively for so long that it's hard sometimes to describe to somebody else exactly how you do something. Trying to explain to, you know, maybe a kid, for instance, like how to ride a bike. You've been riding a bike all your life. It's, you know, you know how to, you, know, you have to find some kind of a balance and you have to pedal and you have to have momentum. But, but trying to describe that in um, actionable detail to someone to be able to have them reproduce the same process that you're doing is sometimes very difficult. Maybe, you know, small details about how fast you let your thumb come up off that pipetter's the plunger on your pipetter when you're aspirating, whether or not you condition your tip prior to aspirating. Those kinds of things are, are, are difficult sometimes even for us to identify that we do ourselves. And then if you're talking about something like, you know, what reader you're, you're using, are you using a different anal analyzer than someone else? If you are transferring this assay to a, a collaborator's lab, are there differences there? And how do you kind of ensure that, that things can be consistent across the two? And even if, if you're using the same analyzer, is it providing you a relative read or is it an absolute read? And that really depends on what you're doing. Right. And also, how about variability due to equipment? Because that's also an important aspect of reproducibility. Right, exactly. So whether or not you're do, using a different type of a reader or a different physical pipetter, it may have the same function, right? I read fluorescence on this reader. I read fluorescence on that reader. But the detectors are different, physically different, even if it's the same, you know, reader, same type of reader. But if it's a different model or if it's a different brand or it's a different age, right? So maybe your detectors aren't aren't quite as robust as they once were. Maybe they need replacing. Maybe they need calibrating. But if that's not something that you're being consistent about, first of all, which piece of equipment you're using on a regular basis or which piece of equipment each individual in the laboratory is using, that can make a huge difference in, in what your, your assay results are. Again, especially if you're, if, you know, you're providing relative read versus an absolute read. 
Right. And that's so important. You mentioned in your article also, and certainly anyone working in a lab environment has seen how small variations in equipment function can add up to a large variation over time. Instrument maintenance, as you mentioned, is key to preventing that kind of issue. And as someone who is an instrument supplier, uh, what do you tell your customers about equipment maintenance and your recommendations? So the first thing is that it starts really simply with cleanliness and maintenance, right? So cleanliness isn't always just a safety concern in a laboratory in terms of cleaning up spills or keeping your reagents clear of instrumentation or potential for, for contaminating sample or equipment. But spills and aerosols and splashes and all those things that are left unattended certainly can cause issues with your equipment, corrosion or component failure. And so really just the, the first piece of that is cleanliness and ensuring that you're, you're treating your equipment in your laboratory like you would your car or your personal electronics, right? I want to make sure that it's working because I'm relying on that car to get me to work every day. And so I'm not going to abuse it. And same thing with your with your instrumentation, regardless of what type of instrumentation that is. You really want to make sure that you're maintaining it on, on the first level of making sure that you're you're respecting it and keeping it nice and clean. And certainly performing your, your PMs and your periodic maintenance as prescribed by the, the manufacturer at the very least. Whether you go above and beyond that, that's great. But there's a schedule PM. Um, to ensure that there are particular parts that that are subject to the most wear and tear are being inspected and potentially replaced uh, on a regular basis and in, in ensuring the performance of that piece of equipment. Many customers perform their own performance qualifications as well, like a PQ periodically. I have a lot of customers who who do like to set that up as a regular schedule, and we do encourage that, running either a subset or um, of your assay, the critical steps of your assay with knowns or quantifiable dyes of some sort, which would, should generate a known result and allow you to um, ensure the performance of all of your equipment at different steps of your process. So having a schedule for that periodic performance uh, qualification is really important. And sometimes that's simply for providing yourself as, your, as, as the operator providing yourself confidence in the equipment that you're using so that when you do have an unexpected result, you can kind of go back to those, those PQ results and you can kind of look at trends. You can look at whether or not um, there's something that you wanted to be proactive about testing or replacing or digging deeper into the performance of that piece of equipment. I think that makes a lot of sense. A, a lot of times, I think we treat equipment in the lab so different than we would treat electronics elsewhere in our lives, like our computer or our television or our iPhone even. Um, and so it's a great reminder that cleanliness is really important, for, not just from a perspective of, of maintaining lab sterility and safety, but also from the perspective of making sure that equipment um, continues to run as expected and has the lifespan that you expect of it. And so I think that's important for, for people to remember that that instruments are, are in the lab are, are becoming more and more technologically advanced. And as such, we need to 
you know, treat them with more care. I think ergonomics is another area that comes up, especially when automation is concerned, because it can often be impacted greatly by methods and repetitive stress injuries are common in the lab. One big culprit everyone knows is certainly pipetting. What are some of the other areas you see ergonomic issues, and do you have any recommendations for addressing these? Certainly. So things like bench height relative to the instrumentation that you're working on, addressing how you're sitting at the bench if you're if you're addressing a plate, if you're addressing a piece of equipment, do you sit higher on the bench top? Are you standing? How much? How far do you have to move from? equipment to equipment from one process to another? Are you crossing the lab from one corner to the other between your liquid handler and your analysis or your incubator and your your pipetting bench? And some of that tends to be, you know, making sure that you're, you have a clear path of where you're going and where you're coming from. It also can certainly limit the amount of time that you're spending doing all of these things and ensure that you're being efficient in your assay and, and in your movements. And those things are, are, are sometimes difficult for laboratories that might be well-established, where you don't necessarily have a whole lot of control over where things go or where things have been set up, or you're limited on space. And so this piece of equipment goes in this part of the bench simply because that's where it fits. But a lot of the times, if you have that opportunity to kind of stand back and look at your bench and look at your lab layout and where does everything sit, or if you're considering bringing in a new piece of equipment, can you think about where it works best in terms of your workflow versus where do I have space on the bench that I can place it? And that can really impact um, your day-to-day work and your repetitive stress concerns, either for yourself or even your lab mates that you may, may or may not be running into as you're trying to get from one piece of equipment to another. And so having the ability to, and sometimes it's a luxury, but having the ability to kind of step back and really assess what is the best layout for this new piece of equipment coming into my laboratory? Or is there a better way to establish my workflow now that I have a new assay that I'm, I'm bringing in? So those times when something new or something is shifting or changing is a good opportunity to, to just step, step back and reevaluate the whole Right. And, you know, it's interesting when you see labs being laid out and built from the ground up, you, great planning, you'll see that they look at workflow and where uh, instruments are and, and where people are walking and, you know, all these kinds of things that make a lot of sense. Kind of reminds me of when you remodel a kitchen and you're looking at, well, where do I put the dishwasher versus the sink versus the stove, et cetera. And you're, you're looking at that workflow. It's very similar to how you would want to have the most efficiency. But in a lab where you already have things set up, it's still important to try to, as you say, set things up as best you can within the confinements of the space and and the setup of the existing lab. And as much as you can, still optimize that that foot traffic and that that workflow in the lab so that you do have the most efficiency possible. And spring spring cleaning is a perfect time to do that. 
Exactly, exactly. And, and certainly sometimes it's not even just an ergonomic, right? So this piece of equipment sitting next to another piece of equipment and, and one per, generates a lot of vibration and that might affect the, the, the one sitting next to it. Or there's a whole lot of heat generation being thrown off by a particular piece of equipment and that might affect your chemistry or your assay. And having the ability to kind of take a look at that as an impact into your assay or your workflow or your results is, is really helpful. Yeah. And that's why I really liked your piece uh, on the spring cleaning, because it's a great time and a great opportunity. It doesn't have to be in the spring, of course, but <laughs> it is important to kind of step back every once in a while and really look at these pieces in more detail and think about how do we do what we do every day and can we do it more efficiently, safe, more safely? Um, you know, there's just so many pieces to it, but, but it really does take a concerted effort to take a step back and look at the entire process in order to identify those opportunities for improvement. Absolutely. And on that, I would just say, do you have anything else you'd like to share with readers before we go? Just say, um, Again, bringing in a new piece of equipment into your laboratory, even if it's replacing or augmenting an existing piece of equipment, is an opportunity to find savings in your assay potentially. If you've got a new reader or analyzer or imager that maybe have the same functionality as, some, as something that you already have in the laboratory, but maybe that new technology or that new software parameters allow you for better sensitivity or a better approach to performing specific critical steps and it may allow you the opportunity to kind of limit the waste in your assay or provide a faster processing which provides better data or better results and so having the opportunity to kind of think about that in the same respect though automation doesn't necessarily ensure consistency in terms of whether or not your instrument has five, six, seven different versions of the same protocol on that piece of equipment, on that, on that automated liquid handler or whatever that process is or whatever that piece of equipment is, ensuring that you're cleaning up old, outdated reader protocols, liquid handler protocols. If something has been updated or something has been adjusted and you're getting better results with that assay and that process and that's why you, you've made that adjustment, ensuring that someone isn't going to default to an older analyzer protocol, right? Because they don't know. So is it easy to walk up to your instrument for somebody who may have less experience on running that assay or that workflow? Is it easy for them to walk up and determine the, the correct method or protocol for them to execute? So you not only do you have consistency with your equipment, but you have consistency from operator to operator because they know exactly what process is the valid process and is the best process or is the current process. Great. Yeah, that's all really important to keep in mind as well. So thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. I think these are all very helpful, useful tips for people working in labs and it's a great time to kind of step back and take a look at your process and look for some opportunities to improve it. Thank you for uh, the opportunity to speak with your readers. 
Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Cell Culture Dish podcast. To learn more about this and other stem cell and biomanufacturing related topics, please visit us at www.cellculturedish.com or for downstream biomanufacturing topics, www.downstreamcolumn.com.